Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is the uh, 19th of the 5th. Michael, how have you been? I'm alright, Gary. Dosed, but not too bad. So, to start off with, at the end of the last show, we were saying that we would talk about the Israeli situation. A lot has been said about the Israeli situation, and we're definitely not going to solve it. One thing that I did find particularly interesting, Michael, is I don't know if you saw uh, Simon Coveney's comments on this that he made to Carol Nolan. Yeah, I saw the ministerial reply to Nolan's question. That I thought was particularly interesting. It was good to see... um, Simon Coveney take a very strong stance on the right of people to protest, Michael. I was impressed by that. I was impressed and I was gratified. Uh, you know, human rights, he says, including the fundamental rights of freedom of expression and association, need to be respected, including in times of conflict. Like, that's obviously, you're talking a very serious situation in Israel at the moment. Much less serious than, say, in Dublin or during the, the pandemic, or even outside of the pandemic. They, that Simon feels so strongly about the right to protest, the right to demonstrate and associate, I think is, is a positive thing for Ireland going forward. Even I consider that a hardline stance, Michael. Come out and say that we have to respect people's right to protest, even during a war. And not just like a war happening somewhere else, during active conflict and exchanges of rocket fire on the ground, the right to protest must be absolutely respected. Yeah, yeah. And I'd like to see the the evolution in Simon Coveney's thinking, Michael. And Simon Coveney has been a great man for the evolution of his thinking. I mean, I can remember when Simon Coveney was saying that he comes to the issue of abortion from the pro-life position. And then I can remember the next month Simon Coveney saying, well, you know, there are difficult cases. And the month after that going, you know, the law is too restrictive. And the month after that saying that he would support repeal. Um, It was a very, very expedient political journey. Well, it took four months. It's not quite an odyssey, though, is it? It's not an odyssey for an adult man, no, not really. But what I thought was particularly interesting on this issue is we've had situations here where people have held protests during the pandemic, which is bad, but not an act of war, Michael. And we had some good protests there a couple of days ago with people protesting uh, in favour of the Palestinians uh, and the rights of the Palestinian peoples. Uh, across Dublin, Galway, Sligo, all of the gaff. Thousands of people out protesting, which was great. Now, as the Times said, there were so many there. While they were making masks, it just simply wasn't possible to socially distance. The reporting of it was quite interesting in that it was reported in the Times, the Examiner and all of those things as a march in solidarity with the people of Palestine which is unusual wording for a protest. That's not usually how newspapers would uh, describe them. So I imagine a press release or something went out and there is a common document that they are drawn from. But while that is interesting, on Coveney, while we did have good protests recently, Michael, we've had bad protests as well. Uh, People calling on the country to reopen and uh, all of that sort of thing. But I'll give you a headline in the Irish Times, Michael, from September. And this was after there had been uh, demonstrations at the weekend I don't think there's any violence at these ones. I think this was just, you know, good old-fashioned protest. Government to discuss right to protest, says Coveney. Minister says balance must be found following weekend demonstration. <laughs> now, balance, scary. I think, you know, I'm not a man, Michael, who says that, you know, if a politician makes a mistake and they change their ways and they, you know, they review it and they come to the right decision, that we should hold that over them forever. I think, you know, you've got to... If you do that, they'll never change your mi- their minds. Rather than criticise them for the make- mistake they made, 
rather we should celebrate that they have now come to the right position and we should welcome them on board. Absolutely. And for Coveney to go from, well, we're going to have to review the right to protest uh, because people held demonstrations that we don't like. And actually, even his language when he was talking to the Irish Times was very interesting, Michael, mm-hmm. because what he was saying was that um, that the state has to manage between giving people the right to protest and to be heard. Now, that's interesting because peop- there are certain people, Michael, who would argue that the state does not give you the right to protest or that the right to protest is in some way aligned to natural laws. But you see, the thing that, you, it, it, you know, yeah, could, you, could, you, could, you could say that, that this, these are rights which we possess and they are inalienable and imprescriptible because they are natural rights. Now, depends on your view. Some people would say, of course, there's no natural right and every right is state-granted. But I don't think that's where Simon Coveney is coming from. No, but hold on, actually. The funny thing about that is, even if you don't take a natural rights position on this, you still don't get away with it because if you read our constitution, which is the foundational document, legal document of the state, it says, we, the Irish people, give ourselves this constitution, right? We, the people, give ourselves this constitution. It's not that the state gives us this constitution or grants these rights, or the state is now going to enumerate and elucidate what rights the citizens will have. No, the Irish people give themselves. And if within that that document, in that constitution, there are these guarantees, these rights to protest, well, these are rights which are given by the people and possessed by the people. They are imprescriptible. They are defined and they have certain limits. But it's, as Simon has made clear, rockets firing down on you is not a limit, Gary. That's not enough to say, no, we, we can't have that protest, that right to protest anymore. So I think that we could be fairly safe imagining that whatever the hell is happening in Ireland at any one time, there aren't going to be circumstances which would be considered to be justified in limiting the right to protest. Simon has made that clear, I think. So, no, it's, it's, all, it's all very good news. Absolutely. I think that the fact he has come to such a wide-ranging position on the right to protest, even though I must say, Michael, that I don't, I wouldn't even go that far myself, I think is to be absolutely justified. And I look forward to him applying this newfound logic, Michael, when the doll again begins to debate the issue of exclusion zones around abortion clinics. I think he will be able to, he's now in a position, Michael, I think, to give a very impassioned speech about the fundamental right to protest that all people have. And I can only assume that, you know, in order to remain consistent, Michael, he will do so. I imagine, Gary, it'll be printed in all of the newspapers. Students, Gary, will get their scissors and they will cut it out and stick it in their uh, scrapbooks because it'll be one of those speeches that will be taken and remembered this passionate defense of the freedom of the people um oh i'm very confident that this will happen it'll be there it'll be like kennedy's inaugural or lincoln's second inaugural it's going to be fantastic mm, we'll etch it in stone somewhere that's what we should do where's coveney from he's from cork there must be some mountain in cork get a mountain with nice big stone mountain something carve the words of liberty like stone struck with bolts of lightning Really, I was thinking a cenotaph. <laughs> well, cenotaphs tend to be for dead. Well, no, it can be for someone who's missing. Well, yeah, they are empty. That's what it is, cenotaph, but uh, the empty tomb. Yes, for those 
right? Where a cenotaph is an empty tomb or a monument in honor, generally of soldiers whose remains were never found, although they have found broader usage. Yeah, in that there's that phrase you see on uh, headstones in from the First World War, rather beautiful, very rather sad phrase, and those known only unto God. But anyway, I I just brought that up because it was something Simon Coveney said that I wanted to particularly talk about about the uh, Israel-Gaza issue. And it was something we've heard reported quite widely. And it was the Israeli bombing of a building in which the Associated Press and Al Jazeera had offices. It was an office block for media organizations, although there were other entities there, other organizations, and it was in fact not just a purely uh, media uh, uh, media based building. So Simon Coveney has said that he condemns in the strongest terms the strike which destroyed media outlets. Now one it didn't destroy media outlets that's just weird phrasing and then freedom of expression and information in the work of journalists must be protected without exception. Human rights including fundamental rights of freedom and expression and association need to be respected including in times of conflict. Now this has been reported quite widely, that this building was blown up by the Israelis. And the Israelis did a, one of their standard approaches. They call ahead and they say, this building is going to be bombed. You have the following amount of time. And then they will effectively bomb the building to whatever stage of disrepair they would like it to be in. What has been quite interesting is that Israel said that they did that because Hamas, who are one of the combatants in this current exchange and have currently fired thousands of rockets into Israel, were utilising the building for the storage of military assets. They apparently passed on their information on this to the Americans, and then they destroyed the building. The response of this from the media, Michael, has been outrage that such a thing could ever happen, that uh, a building in which the media found itself could be targeted like that. Part of that, Michael, is probably based on you know, the understanding that the media is there to show people what's really happening and anything that damages that ability limits the ability of the public to know anything. And, you know, that's very important for democratic societies. Part of the outrage, I would say, is that they're the people who determine what constitutes news and it happened to them. But they became the news in a way they didn't like. There's a long tradition, Gary, of Western media going to centres of conflict and establishing themselves in a hotel or a bit, some kind of building, usually a hotel, usually the best hotel in town, one with a nice roof garden and maybe a swimming pool or two. And that the, 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 the agreement will be within the local combatants. You don't blow up the Western journalists because everybody's trying to keep to some degree sweet with the Western journalists. It's a way of being in the conflict, but not always. No, that's not to say that there haven't been occasions when these hotels have indeed come under fire. The odd bomb will go astray, the odd machine gun will end up strafing the the back bar but generally they are left they're considered to be inviolable and that now let's face that that is a good thing journalists should not be considered to be combatants no more than medical personnel or red cross people or un reps what i thought was particularly interesting about this is that we've no proof either way michael by the, by the way of this no hard evidence of anything it would have been very silly for israel to lie about something like that though but what happened that made me kind of decide to look into this a bit more is the Associated Press, the CEO of the Associated Press, came out and said, we have had no indication Hamas was in the building or active in the building. 
Uh, we actively check this to the best of our ability, and we're shocked and horrified that the Israeli military would target and destroy the building housing the Associated Press's Bureau and other news organisations in Gaza. When I was younger, Michael, I had a particular interest in conflict journalism, which is where this would fall. The reporting from war zones, uh, with militaries, or away from militaries. Mm -hmm. The big debate in that space, Michael, is about whether or not you go in with a military or government, well, one of the big debates, or you go in on your own on the ground, whether you embed with these organisations or you don't. And the trade-off there is, if you go in with the organisations, you will get safety and you will get access and you will get stuff that you wouldn't otherwise get. You also get to move with them and it has many advantages. The downside is, you will, as part of going in with them, agree to certain terms. Now, in lots of cases, these aren't going to be terribly onerous on you, depending on the country you're in and the military you're dealing with. In other cases, they will be exceptionally onerous on you, and they will actively try and control what you talk about and what you see. And even if there is no formal agreement, they can still apply social pressure on you. But I, I know this was always a, a, a... For example, during the, I think, this, these, the second Gulf War, the Iraq War, there was a lot of debate about this with, within the media, about embedded or not embedded. You know, Patrick Coburn, Claude Coburn's son, left as writer, uh, he would have been uh, friendly with Fisk, not a fan of Fisk's, but on this particular subject, both of them were very hostile to the idea of this of be, being embedded with forces. Uh, because their position was, it wasn't simply a question that you were going to be limited necessarily in your access or limited in what you could say, because depending on who you were with, those limits and uh, you know there are ways around it and a good journalist will get the story out anyway they'll he'll find a way of framing it the problem that they saw and i have talked to people who've been in the situation and they, they said this is true that there's a i don't i suppose you could call it a kind of of a stockholm syndrome but really it's just team you were in in this situation a high stress dangerous situation with these men inevitably after a period of time, you, well, I would say inevitably, almost inevitably, you start to associate with them. They are your guys. They are also protecting you. And the other guys are shooting at you. The perspective of the journalist has to change. It's not a, may not be a conscious thing. It may be a deliberate thing. But the idea that the journalist is there as a, as some kind of an independent or impartial or unbiased reporter, insofar as that's ever possible, is severely compromised because you become part of Team America or Team France or Team GB, whatever it happens to be, because you are with these people, you are embedded literally with them. So you, 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 your journalistic capacities become compromised. And I, I think that's a reasonable an understandable thing. It's absolutely fair. It's part of why militaries allow journalists to embed with them and that they can direct you to particular locations or things that they want you to see and away from things that they don't want you to see. Yeah. And so that's not just in active war zones. Certain countries do it. Certain countries are widely known to do it. So for instance, North Korea. If you end up in North Korea, you have made a deal of some kind with the North Korean government and they are actively monitoring you. Anything to do, anything in Hamas's territory, there is either a formal or an implicit agreement 
with Hamas, and they are monitoring you. That is simply understood. Now, so when the AP, when the, the CEO of the AP was came out and said that they had no indication that Hamas was in the building, my immediate thought was, well, that's horseshit. There's no way they wouldn't have been in the building in some capacity. The question is, to what degree were they in the building and what else were they doing? Now, Hamas is also very fond of the use of human shields, so a media building would be a very effective option there. Because as we've seen, <clears throat> if you blow up a building full of media, it's definitely getting reported. And then I went to look into it. And what I found very quickly was a 2014 article in The Atlantis, sorry, in The Atlantic, which was written by a former AP editor of their Jerusalem Bureau, and which talked about what it was like to be in the region and the extent to which Hamas was able to influence AP coverage. It's a really interesting article, just even outside of the, the current issue, just its description of the functioning of a foreign bureau in a situation like this. It's a really interesting piece. So this was written in 2014, by the way. The same guy wrote another article in 2017 in Tablet. Now, the Tablet article is actually about the the APs, uh, the Associated Press, collaboration with the Nazis. That was partially an embedding issue that they were making. They were in Germany, and in order to remain in Germany, they had to make certain agreements with the Nazis. And then over time, you reach a point where you're actually just producing propaganda. And the AP actually had... I'd known that they had been... in the area and that they had made they had some involvement with the SS particularly, but the uh, the extent of it was actually far more than I had assumed it was. But the, the article, the, the 2014 article, is pretty open that Hamas actually has wide-ranging influence on AP productions in the area. And in, I'm not sure if it's in this one or in the, um, the one about the uh, working with the Nazis, he also brings up his experience with Hamas in that, in relation to embedding, that they, at at least one point, the implication was that they would uh, kill an AP reporter if certain things were reported. Mm-hmm. And he's pretty open that, yeah, Hamas were involved, everyone knew that they were involved, and they influenced what was written about. Because you wouldn't have been in Gaza if that wasn't the case. You simply would not have been allowed to operate. So I don't, I don't find the AP's justification justifying it all. It's simply not credible to say that Hamas were operating at this level in the same building. I mean, this was not, for example, this was not Sears Towers. This wasn't 115 stories, you know, where they were separated by a, a mile and a half. The, the, that Hamas would have been operating to the extent that they were apparent, allegedly, in this building. And they weren't aware of that fact. And no one would have pointed that out or told them about that. Just, just does not seem to be credible. No, I... I... Here's a line from his um, from his work. So this is from his article on um, the Nazis and AP. And he's talking about actually North Korea and the influence North Korea has over AP because everything they write is answerable to, um, to the regime. And that there was a written agreement between the AP and North Korean government allowing, basically determining what the AP could do. And that North Korean AP staffers would avoid subjects the regime did not want people to see. And then he goes, the most relevant experience, example from my own experience as an AP correspondent in Jerusalem between 2006 and 2011 is Gaza, which is controlled by Hamas and where the AP has a sub-bureau. Running that sub-bureau requires both passive and active cooperation with Hamas. And then he goes on to list times in which Hamas were able to influence 
AP's coverage and the extent to where they, which they were linked in. So, and as I said, this, this is a textbook example of what happens in these areas. No one should be surprised by this. There's absolutely no chance that the AP would have been free of this anyway. Yet they come out and say they have no, they had no indication that Hamas was in the building. And that's just not, it's not in any way credible. But yet we, now that is not to say the bombing, by the way, was justified because Hamas could be active in the building, but at below the level where an active military intervention was necessary or justifiable. But it does indicate that the AP are not trustworthy in relation to this. This has been going on for uh, a little while now. And I think neither you nor I particularly want to talk about it, even though it is a very big international story, because it is classically an example of a... it's the definition of the problem of foreign of a foreign story of foreign reporting that it's so incredibly difficult to have any kind of confidence in what anybody might be telling you and it's true that there there are always going to be people who have a particular story to tell but i think that it seems to have reached its apotheosis in the middle eastern conflict i remember talking to an nco in the irish army who was based as uh, with a peacekeeping group in Lebanon, South Lebanon, and this is many years ago. And I can't remember how it happened, but they were in a forward position and the local, it wouldn't have been Hamas in Lebanon, possibly, Hezbollah up there, I suppose, had taken over um, a local primary school and was using it as a base for attacks. And they had some artillery pieces. I'm not sure if it was artillery pieces and or uh, rocket launchers, but it was artillery pieces. Anyway, the, the Irish, they started to come under ar- artillery attack. Now, I don't think it was ever officially organized, but anyway, not long after that, I- Israeli Air Force came and basically just blew up, blew shit out of this installation, for which service the Irish troops were quite happy. Now, is that within an hour and a half, so there were all these jeeps started arriving, all journalists, because they've got a story, which the story was Israelis had attacked and bombed a primary school, except that it was the weekend, whatever. It was Saturday or Sunday. Sunday is, I don't know, Sunday is a weekend day in uh, Lebanon, probably South Lebanon it is. Whatever day, anyway, there were no children in it. And my mate was saying to me, he said, he was talking to the journalist, he said, no, 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 there are no children there. It was it was the weekend. It's The, the kids aren't there. He said, but listen, I can show you the... We have the the remains of the the artillery pieces, the rocket launchers, whatever. They go, no, 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 no. This isn't a story. And everybody just got in their jeeps and, and went away. Uh, Hezbollah using primary schools as a cover for uh, to bomb UN peacekeepers was not a story. Israelis bombing primary school was a story, but only if they were dead kids. No dead kids, no story. They just went. So there, this has been going on for a very, very long time. And I think everybody knows that. But... I mean, you can piece this, you can, you can talk to people that you have a certain level of trust in, you can try and parse it and you can try and sieve it. But I mean, how much confidence do you have of anything that you're hearing? This is part of the problem with it. It's very far away and you don't have on the ground experience. And I mean, here's one actually from one of these articles. This guy, who again was a correspondent and then a Jerusalem, an editor in the Jerusalem branch of the AP, 
So he says that during the Israel-Hamas war that erupted at the end of 2008, our local Palestinian reporter in Gaza informed the news desk desk in Jerusalem that Hamas fighters were dressed as civilians and were being counted as civilians in the death toll. A few hours later, he called again and asked me to strike the detail from the story, which I did personally. Someone had clearly spoken to him, and the implication was that he was at risk. After I published this detail in an essay for Tablet in 2014, the bureau chief of the AP at the time confirmed it, adding that a refusal to comply would have put our reporter's life in danger. From that moment on, more or less, AP's coverage from Gaza became a quiet collaboration with Hamas. Certain rules were made clear to the local staffers in Gaza, and those of us outside Gaza were warned not to put our Gazan staff at risk. Our coverage shifted accordingly, although we never informed our readers. Hamas military actions were left vague or ignored, while the effects of Israeli actions were reported at length, giving the impression of wanton Israeli aggression, just as Hamas wanted. While I say I'm sceptical of both sides, I would have to confess that on certain certain kinds of details and certain kinds of things, I am more likely to believe the Israelis, simply because they have a certain kind of civic society, which means that certain things can ultimately be discovered. They have actually got shall we say, disagreement within their own body politic. They have, there are oppositional parties debating and disagreeing and records are kept and things are rooted out and people are found and testimonies are taken and, court, and courts are used. Sitting prime ministers can be investigated for corruption. Sitting prime ministers can indeed be investigated for corruption. And I don't think, well, maybe I'm completely off, but it seems to me incontrovertible. The attitude to Israel going from 48, plucky, you know, post-war, post-Holocaust, uh, a, a place for Israelis, a place for Jews to call home, a place for Jews to be safe, then the various wars, plucky little state. Maybe the fact not unconnected with the fact that Israel originally is a Zionist, it's a socialist, left-wing, secular experiment. And a lot of the people on sort of the creative media left, you know, the kind of people that might end up working in, back in the 60s, the 70s, even working in a kibbutz. But then in the 70s, the Black September, after the, after the 73 war and taking the heights, things have changed. And the, the, the cultural position, the cultural perception of Israel has changed within the class of people, which mostly supplies our media. And increasingly, Israel is the, the big bad. Uh, and it just, it, I am in no doubt that I'm sure that Israel is doing stuff which we would look at and consider to be reprehensible. And not just reprehensible, but bad politics and bad policy and short term. And why the hell are you doing that? Now, insofar as we're in a position to make judgments about the situation they're in. But the capacity to ignore precisely what Hamas is. I'm sorry, that's, I find that comical, Gary. I've seen people deny again and again that there is such a thing as a Hamas charter. You and I saw the photographs, do you remember we saw the photographs of the Trinity Labour students? From river to the, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. I think it might be worth explaining that slogan slightly and what it means. There are certain factions that don't want Israel to exist at all. There are certain factions which would like Israel to be a smaller country, and there are certain factions which go somewhere in between. 
The river that they are talking about is the River Jordan. Now, the River Jordan consists, well, is Israel's eastern border as it goes up through Jordan. The sea is the sea to the west of Israel. The Mediterranean. So, from the river to the sea is originally used to mean Israel should be destroyed. Israel would be extirpated. Now, I'm not saying that. This is the thing with political slogans. People often use them without realising where they come from or what they actually mean. As opposed to just, you know, a jaunty saying that sounds good. Yeah, 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 that's great. Fine, fine, great. These are university students in Trinity, supposedly the best university in the country. Mm -hmm. They are supposed that they must have learned how to read and how to write. They're 18, 19, 20, 21 years of age. And they're saying from, and okay, maybe they haven't fully reflected and internalized the full consequences of the ramifications of what that means. But you can't pretend to me that they have no sense of what it means that they should be free from the river to the sea. I mean, that would have a level of a lack of, of, of reflection and of naivete, of disingenuousness, which would be ridiculous. Seeing there, Michael, is you and I have both worked with students from Trinity on various training things. And to, to assume that a student in Trinity has any fucking idea what they're talking about, just from personal experience, is way off the mark. Because students, in general, just say a lot of stuff that they don't actually know anything about. So yeah, I can absolutely see these people just standing there and assuming this is just a general statement on Palestinian statehood or good things and against bad things. And not realising that its actual literal meaning is that um, Israel shouldn't exist. You know, when I see the guys marching with the rainbow flags... And the kefia, you know, LGBT truly supports the rights of the supports the Palestinian. What? Yeah, okay, fine. Support the Palestinian people, but the idea that there's a which they often do, they go on further and ultimately support the regime there. Every week, there's some poor Arab kid sneaking across the border into Israel, where they actually do get asylum if they're gay. Because Gary, you know, there isn't, there are not that many LGBT drop-in centres. Uh, in Gaza these days. Uh, there are drop-off-the-roof centres, but not drop-in centres. Didn't really want to talk so much about the conflict itself, so much as that one small part of it, that one small little story, where I think that, uh, pretty safe to say that what the, EP, what the AP is saying is clearly not credible. And again, that doesn't mean justify the bomb the building. No, and I suppose, Gary, to be fair, what I'm, I suppose I'm allowing myself to be do something which I shouldn't. Which I, I'm being annoyed by... What I'm talking to friends of mine and, and others who have absolute bland, blind confidence in the statements that they're getting in from Gaza. And I don't understand how you can have that level of confidence in statements from a group, from a totalitarian regime, from any regime. This could be coming from the Bern Canton in Switzerland. You don't trust them that much. And I, because I'm a weak and frail human being, I tend to respond to that. Maybe excess by since taking cudgels up for the other side, which is not a logical or correct thing to do. But the, le- the, the, the have you noticed? And maybe I want if there's anybody else out here who's noticed this. Uh, maybe it's just an accident. It's a bit like you know every other time they say London Derry Derry London Derry Derry. Every time I have heard the radio news report on an incident in uh, the, in Israel Gaza, the first line of the report is Israeli. Air forces or Israeli forces attacked and hit X, Y, Z. 
And then the second part of the report, if there is part, is that uh, Hamas or Palestinian forces responded or Palestinian forces had attacked X, Y, and Z. But in the last number of days, every time I've heard it, this may be a complete accident. The, the first part of it has been the Israelis. You think it very much feels like it's being framed as cause and effect, call and response. And I'm not sure if it is as simple as that, Gary. No, no. Anyway, I don't think anyone here will be going to Israel anytime soon. I'd like to go to Israel. I'd like to go to Jerusalem. I think it would be really interesting. I would say, Michael, that if you were going to go, you may have some problems if you were hoping to go from Shannon. Yeah, Shannon will be tricky. Who knew, Gary? Who knew that, uh, the, that there could be consequences to actions? Closing down the, uh, the aviation industry for a considerable amount of time may lead to things like Erlingus closing down certain facilities in Shannon. Who could have seen that coming, Michael? So it looks like um, 81 cabin crew in the Shannon base that Aer Lingus have just closed. They've clo- they're permanently closing their cabin crew base in Shannon, and they're going to temporarily close their cabin crew base in Cork. So we have uh, 81 cabin crew in Shannon, and then uh, apparently about 45 ground staff in Shannon will also be laid off. It's looking at over 100 redundancies here in one. At the Cork airport, um, the Cork... Cabin crew base is expected to open late 2021. And you're looking at about 200 people who are going to be temporarily laid off in Cork during that period. So effectively, I mean, you're into the 300s there, Michael. This is just a kickoff. This is just a kickoff. The aviation industry has been on its knees, uh, begging for help for a great deal of time at this point. And that help has not been coming from the government at any terrible speed. Now it seems that we've got a lot of politicians who seem to be um, surprised by this, Michael. This seems to be the first time that they've ever heard that the aviation industry might be in a bit of trouble because of this. Nobody told them. I mean, nobody said anything. People were saying something about quarantines and, and, and red lists and enforced waiting and this and shutting down travel and but we nobody said that that would affect aviation. Why didn't they tell us? It's not just Aer Lingus that's posting losses. Ryanair on Monday reported, I think, their, their, their largest annual loss ever. They said, it, they, they said this has been the worst 12 months they've ever had. They've fired over a thousand people. And I, th- I think, I think the total, the annual after-tax loss they had, Michael, was 815 million euros. Wow. And here's the kicker though, Michael. That's better than they were predicting. And Ryanair, Ryanair has been a highly profitable company for a very long time, Michael. Yes. Ryanair is very well run and it's optimized for profit in a way few companies are. So if Ryanair is losing nearly a billion euro a year at this point, Mm. other companies that are not as well insulated and not as well run, not as efficient at that kind of scale. That's got to be. They've got to be taking a savage beating. And part of this is is COVID. Part of it is unavoidably COVID. But not all of it. Some of it is the result of policy choices, and I would say quite a lot of it is a result of policy choices, not COVID nineteen in and of itself. We have already seen in the last four or five weeks, both in Europe, in the United States, uh, 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 amongst other places. The, not the growing murmurings 
that when the bailouts come, the airlines are going to be very much towards the list, to the top of the list for the for the bailouts. I'm just beginning to wonder now how big the bailout bill is going to be. <laughs> what what proportion of the world's economy is going to end up? Who's 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 lending money? Where's this money coming from anyway? If our line is, well, look, lads, when we get to the end of this, we'll have a structured bailout. The immediate question is, how many of these lads are getting there? Like, if it's a case of, yeah, wait a year and we'll give you a bailout. Well, what do you do if you go bankrupt within the year? How many, or if you don't go bankrupt, but you've lay off, you know, hundreds of staff or thousands of staff? What do you do then? I am opposed to nearly any bailout or aid to particular sectors. I think that barren national interests, they should just be let to operate on their own. But I think we do need to understand here that this is not a sector which has failed on its own. It is a sector which is largely failing due to regulation that have been imposed on it. And we can say that, well, those regulations need to be there for the public good. To which, okay, let's say we accept that and we want no changes in those regulations for the most part. If we're going to do things to protect the public good, is it in the public good that we then let those regulations destroy the industry at the same time? But Gary, the problem, well, there are going to be lots of problems. And let's face it, the aviation industry is one of those industries which has historically had a hell of a lot of turbulence in it. It's the kind of business where businesses come up, become very successful, and then five years down the line just go pop and they're gone. You have old national uh, lines that just carry massive losses year in, year out. Um, Alitalia just bleeds, you know, decades of bleeding money. That's start, That's been stopping bit by bit those national airlines, nationally owned lines started to disappear. Sabina just, Sabina never made any money for a hundred years. And that disappeared. But there's a, there's, they're going to face a fundamental problem, Gary. Shall we say an, an, an existential paradox? They're going to be looking at creating large-scale supports for an industry which is going to be specifically on their target list in order to meet their carbon emissions targets. One of the things that has been well-bruited around for quite some time is that the amount of international air travel that goes on has to be reduced and reduced significantly. This is the perspective of people coming from the green uh, movement. If we're going to meet any of the greenhouse gas targets, I don't see how they're going to square that circle. No, I, I mean, also, we are an island. We have an incredibly open economy. It's kind of in our interest to have a fairly strong aviation sector or, well, in general, Sectors that are capable of, let's say, international freight and transport kind of need those things, Michael. And it might be best not to let them be totally crippled. Shannon, I just wonder, Gary, how much of what's going on with Aer Lingus, I mean, I'm sure there has to be a part of it, is COVID and the shutdown. There must be some element to it. And how much of this is simply maybe an anticipation of a wider strategic move that IAG are doing with Aer Lingus anyway? There was a report back in... Aer Lingus now have launched, I think, three routes going out of Manchester. And it very much has the appearance that Manchester is going to be the Aer Lingus hub for the United States. I, there was a comment made by Luis Gallego, who is the boss of IAG. Dublin will remain an important hub after COVID. I don't know. I mean, I may, I may be just purely projecting tone onto a, onto a sentence, Gary. But there's something with that that has there's there's 
there's less enthusiasm or less size to that statement than I think if you were an Erlingus in Dublin, you might like to hear. Oh yeah, Dublin will remain an important hub. No mention of Cork or Shannon, but Dublin will remain an important hub. It does have, uh, it does have the same you know, sort of tone of the, at the end of a relationship, Michael, where there's that nearly mandatory, we'll still be friends. Yeah, listen, you'll always be a really important person to me. Mm. You'll always be in my life. You know, I'll always... It's, it's, it's the same tone I hear when some large multinationals talk about why they're in Ireland uh, because of its highly educated workforce. Yeah. And you, you just like, and if the tax incentives were to, to go, like, oh, absolutely. I mean, it'd be, take us weeks to relocate. <laughs> Although I don't know if that, I mean, if you're, we, the, the Edmund Burke did a little bit of research on that a while ago. And while obviously tax rates are, are, are not unimportant, that uh, the consensus for, for an offer of the inward investment was, it was not so much the rates that were important, but the security of the rate, the predictability of tax policy, which they found attractive. And the sense that Ireland has decided that if there is one hill they will die on, it will be corporate tax, which may indeed be a hill, Gary, which is coming up on the horizon soon. I don't know if you saw the, uh, slightly getting off topic here, but it was announced that there's going to be a, another big chat uh, in Europe with all of the all the partners coming together to talk about a greater degree of harmonization of tax. Yes, I, 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 I know about it because I, a very lovely fellow from the Hungarian government reached out to me to ask me what Ireland thought about it. <laughs> And and you 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 told them I'm sure that Ireland thought it was an intriguing idea, and should be have a good chat about it, but it will require it will require um, unanimous. Yes, and I I made the point that historically we've said the OECD should handle it on the assumption that the OECD was structurally incapable of handling it, which is now looking there is a sort of oh they may actually be able to do this. Yeah, tax competition at an international level. That's why we can't do it now. And should that fall, we'll find another fucking reason. Just on, on the... So, this was an absolutely foreseeable thing, Michael. But we're starting to see politicians come out and talk about how terrible it was and how, you know, they would have done anything they could to uh, avoid this. And you sort of look at some of them and look at their voting record and sort of go, well, you seem to play a not insignificant part in this happening. Yeah. It's sort of like stabbing someone, and then after they fall over, becoming very distraught. I didn't know he'd react like that. People bleed now? When did that happen? That's a design flaw. So actually, speaking of uh, of criminality, Michael, just to close up with, interesting case I just wanted to mention, and it's mostly because I don't really understand what's happening with the case, but it's one of those cases that on the face of it, people are going to say is absolutely outrageous. So the details of it are, are this. A man walked up to two toddlers as they were sitting in a buggy outside their house. Now, the chap was high on magic mushrooms. He then took a mini blowtorch, which I assume is the sort you would use perhaps on souffles, and um, used it on the face of one of the children before, as the Irish Times says, quickly leaving the scene. So he, he goes to, to court, and he receives a 20-month sentence. Now, the immediate reaction, I think, when people hear that is that 20 months for using a blowtorch on a child's face seems, Michael, to be on the light side. Actually, sorry, that's probably the second reaction. The initial reaction is, it's fucking Nolan again, isn't it? This is the man that sent us a guy for to six years for, wasn't it? He did a tax, a, 
a vat job on on uh, garlic from China. Yeah, so that was probably the first reaction. Then the second reaction. But the case is a little bit more complicated than that. So it looks like this guy may have schizophrenia. And so the question then is, well, if he had schizophrenia, surely this is something that should be dealt with as a mental health issue. Surely he should be put into, let's say, a secure unit. They should work on treating the schizophrenic disorder. But that wasn't the decision of the court. The decision of the court was that this should be dealt with as a criminal matter and that he should be sentenced to 20 months. Now, he will get time off that almost assuredly. But I I don't know. It's one of those weird things where it would seem to make sense that he should be sent to a secure mental health facility. But if you're going to actually say, no, he was right in the mind and he can be tried for this as a criminal, 20 months does not seem sufficient. I, I don't... I saw the story when it was... It obviously hit Twitter, a lot of people commenting, and everybody is saying, oh my God, oh, uh, this that's absolutely crazy. We need mandatory minimum sentences. The bastards like this, he should get the chair. All these natural human reactions to a story like this. And then people noticed that it was Nolan again, and people go, oh God, it's him. And that fueled another element. But then when you look at it, it's it's not exactly clear, Gary, what the psychological status of the person is. Some people, it was being reported that he was having a psych... Yes, he was on he was on mushrooms, right? Now, if he's just on magic mushrooms and that introduced... That, to me, that's not a defence. I, I, I have never had any time with this thing where people said, oh, he was drunk and did X, Y, and Z, but he was drunk, he didn't mean it. To me, you should almost regard that as an exacerbating factor. If you're drunk and you do something, it should be at least as serious as doing it when you're sober. That's not an issue. But this, he has a, he has a psychiatric history. It's implied that he, he started using cannabis, which may have led him to developing schizophrenia. It was reported that he was having a psychotic episode. Now, if he has schizophrenia, if he's not being compliant with his medication, if he's on magic mushrooms on top of it, Christ knows what kind of situation. But I don't understand this. He's either crim. If you sentence him for 20, 20 months in prison, what you're what you're saying by that sentence is that he had mens rea, right? Now, if you're saying he had he had mens rea, then twenty months is far, far too short a period for this kind of crime. It seems to me. But if he didn't have mens rea, if he if he was on mushrooms and he is schizophrenic and he's not compliant, and he's going through a psychotic episode, which meant that he did not have the capacity to understand what he was doing at the time, and he did not have the capacity to understand what he was doing at the time, was wrong and or illegal, well then, he shouldn't be going to prison. He should be going to a secure unit where he should be receiving psychiatric care. And then, at the discretion of the state and or the psychiatrists charged with his care, released or not released back in society, depending on whether or not he was perceived to be a risk. Now, that's always a hard one. And I know people in that business, and I don't envy them their job. I don't, I don't, none of this makes sense to me. If he's, a, if he's schizophrenic and having a, in, going through a psychotic episode, well, why isn't, he, why isn't he being treated in a secure in a secure hospital? If he had mens rea, then 20 months for burning a child's face with a mini blowtorch. It's ridiculous. None of that, none, none of it makes sense to me. I was reading the, the some of the victim impact statements. I know you don't like victim impact statements at all, Michael, and I take your point on it. But I was reading this and it was like, well, you know, he's uh it was awful, and he's afraid of strangers, and, you know, he's afraid to go outside, and he, he screams constantly. Like, yeah, I can see that. That all, yeah, that all kind of comes into line. But uh, apparently the, the family had left him and his, his brother out in the buggy. 
They're going in and out of the house getting stuff for to go to the park. They heard him screaming. They went outside and they saw his... He was just inconsolable and there was a burning smell. I mean, can you imagine? You've got your two kids. You're, you're doing... You're just on a day, a perfectly normal day. You're bringing stuff in and out. You're going to the park. You, you literally... I mean, literally seconds you've, li- you've left the child in a place where you, in the middle of the day, perfectly safe. And this person comes along and just does this. It's completely impromptu, unprovoked. This utterly random act of violence. When the guard that he originally went to this guy, because he was caught on CCTV, he denied and said he he said he hadn't hurt the children, that they were perfectly fine, that he had bent down to pat one of them on the head, and then decided not to do it. He he suggested that the child had been stung by a bee or something. Yes. He then later admitted to a psychiatrist that he had done this. But yeah, it's it's a bizarre case. It's either it seems like a mental health issue, in which case it should be treated as one, and. Always understanding, you know, to be clear, that schizophrenics are not normally violent. It's uh, only a, it's a small subset of people who suffer from schizophrenia who may also be violent. Like I, I, I've seen I've seen people with schizophrenia uh, cut themselves open because they you know, they needed to bleed out the moon and the stars. And that's actually that's a point. That's a point more. Your schizophrenics are far more likely to be violent towards themselves than towards other people. It's a it's a hor- it's a horrible horrible condition to, to suffer from. It's it's not pleasant at all for either those who have it or for those around them. In many cases, strictly family members. But yeah, I I just found the interesting because Ireland does have a finding of um, not guilty by reason of insanity. Yeah, and that it's dealt with then under the um, the Criminal Law Insanity Act. And if that was the case, then the sentence doesn't make sense. But if Nolan thought that that was not a factor that the guy was mentally competent, that sort of indicates that Nolan either thought that schizophrenia wasn't relevant in the issue or that the schizophrenia was a lie. In which case, either case, you would think that you'd go for a much heavier sentence. Now, just for clarification, Nolan could have given him a maximum of five years. He gave him three years and then he basically suspended part of that sentence uh, with a number of conditions, which was not necessary. So he could have given him substantially more and he could have removed the conditions or the the, um, the suspension of the sentence. And I just, I don't know, I just, the sentence just doesn't make sense to me. And it's one of those interesting things that actually a lot of Nolan's cases bring forward. Or at least a lot of the time we're talking about cases that bring this issue forward. It turns out to have involved Nolan in some way. And it's this. Law is meant to be you know, fair and equitable to people. It is meant to be predictable, fundamentally. But we have a thing in Ireland where... Uh, it's kind of luck of the draw. You get the right judge on the right day, and you can come out with massively different sentences. Not just in Ireland, any place that has, like, the United Kingdom, or, I think, Australia, places which have a similar system, you're going to have differences. You know, Gary, we're talking about knowing what the results of, what, what the penalties are going to be. We're in a country we've discovered in the last few months, where we don't know what a crime, what is a crime and what isn't a crime. The first thing we should remedy is the situation where we don't know if we're we're even breaking the law in the first place. I mean, I I take your point that there will always be variation in common law systems. Absolutely fair. But we don't... There's variation and there's what we have. We just seem to have a system which is effectively arbitrary. Uh, Do you know what I think... I think actually what may be worse is actually that when you break it down, it's not that arbitrary. It's quite predictable. What's arbitrary is... What, what judge you happen to draw on the day? Because you can, you can have, you have two judges and if you get one, 
you know that your tariff has just gone up by 40%. This guy, if you get this guy, your tariff has gone down by 40%. So the arbitrary thing is, depending which judge, because one judge tends to be, a, he's a bit of a, a hang and flogging guy, and the other guy is, oh, well, you know, the prisons are full, and he's only young, and sure doesn't do any good anyway, and well, he needs help. We get we get the system we have, but it's it's hard. We tried every all different jurisdictions have tried legislative uh, frameworks, mandatory sentencing. So it's very hard to see. But I tell you this, Greg, I am confident that before the year is out, that if we want to, we will find another case where the, the where the the bowled judge justice has done something similarly interesting. And we will be able to talk about that again. I, I've been a fairly large proponent of sentencing guidelines for a considerable amount of time. And there is an interesting argument there where people will say that judges should have discretion. And it's to an extent I think they're right, but not to the extent some people think that they should have discretion. There is this weird... I don't think that people realise that law ultimately requires, if not the consent of the governed than the ability to coerce the government or the governed into agreement. And the more that you end up with sentencing and results that are wildly at variance with what the public desires and what the public thinks is just, the harder it actually is to maintain any law in any area because the cumulative effect is to damage the sense of the justness of the system. And I don't think a lot of our legal people and legal scholars realise that Yes, you can make your decisions, but sometimes there is a cost for decisions which the public do not agree with. Well, that's a problem. That's a problem for your society. That You do need, I mean, you, you can get by just on coercion, but you can only get by for so long, Gary. Ultimately, you can only govern with the consent. This might seem like a strange argument for us both to be making, given that in general, we have both said that if the law should be as independent as possible and it should be ruled on the specifics of the law. And I think that is absolutely the case. But there is there are certain people who want to totally disengage the law from the people it relates to and their opinions about what the law should be. Because the law at the end of the day is not... There's no external you know, common law code that can be found. They're just socially determined things. There's no list that we can find written down. Yeah, and if you have a system where the legal system does not reflect the actual views of the population... That is a problem. But within that space, yes, it should be independent and it should be given as much discretion as possible. But we've started to go way beyond that. And I think it's damaging. No, I think it, 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 it is. It is. I think that maybe at least on one direction, which has there has been talk about, and I, I, I don't know if, it's, if, if it has been advanced yet, but there were, there were some schemes being framed for it where you would have internal judicial... Not so much inquiries, but sort of in conferences where uh, colleagues would review each other. They would meet up. They would discuss sentencing guidelines. They would look at sentences and they, they would look at examples of where there had been large disparities and discuss what had been going on there. Maybe if there was just a broader level of communication across the across the the fraternity and sorority of judges, that that would help for a start that they were aware of what other judges were doing and perhaps become aware that they were actually outliers in their sentencing. Because it's possible that some of these people simply don't know what other judges are, are handing down. Anyway, Gary, um, I suppose we shall be back on Friday. We should be back on Friday. And then, uh, assuming everything goes to plan, 
On Sunday, we will have an interview with uh, Chris Snowden of the IEA. He's their syntax man. He's a good guy. He's, he's, he, I would recommend anybody uh, to tune into that. He, that. he will be entertaining and he has lots of opinions about everything, which is good fun. All the best. And then, bye-bye.